Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with uh, the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Vinod Skaria. He's a principal scientist at uh, what's called the CSIR Institute of Genomics in India, uh, Genomics and Integrative Biology as well. And uh, we're going to be talking to him today about his research. Looks like he works on computational biology of non-coding functional RNAs. So we'll unpack that. So, Vinod, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me here. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your research. What is it about? Yeah, so most of my research works uh, is in the, around, in the area of genomics. So what we do in a regular uh, day is uh, to work with a lot of clinicians around the country and work with them to make a diagnosis for patients who don't otherwise have a diagnosis. So these patients otherwise suffer from rare genetic condition. Uh, during the COVID epidemic, of course, uh, we had to repurpose ourselves and our labs and, of course, our thoughts to address something very, very pertinent. And that's how we all got into uh, the space of virology. So um, typically, it says you work in computational biology. So, again, what, what kind of projects have you worked on? Let's get a little bit more into the details of it. So what we do in computational biology is essentially look at the genomes or the proteomes of organisms on the computer. Well, my, my initiation into virology started... Uh, uh, during my PhD years, where we worked on uh, a class of small non-coding RNAs called microRNAs. And we were one of the earliest groups to use computational tools to be able to understand the, the potential antiviral role of these microRNAs. So we worked on HIV, we worked on a lot of other viruses uh, to understand how these small non-coding RNAs could bind to the virus genome and then therefore regulate them. The difference between an experimental uh, lab and a computational lab is that we work on algorithms, we work on sequences, and we we sort of develop hypotheses that uh, that can be later validated in the lab. Well, what, what role do uh, non-coding RNAs have typically in our biology? Yes, so non-coding RNAs do have a lot of biology. Uh, a lot of biology is still yet to be understood, uh, and uh, the the host pathogen interaction and or, or the role as antivirals is. Uh, something that that we worked on, and that's a that's a field that's still emerging. But again, what do we understand non-coding RNAs to do right now? What functions do they have? So non-coding RNAs, by definition, are transcripts uh, or uh, or RNAs in the body which do not encode for proteins. There are a variety of functions that have now been attributed. Practically encompasses all of biology that we know, right from uh, starting with regulating of the the gene expression to for example, uh, at, at the DNA level, uh, at the RNA level, even at the protein level. And this is all, uh, in, in molecular terms, could be summarized into just interactions, interactions with either DNA, other classes of RNA, or to protein. So anything that any one of these components do, non-coding RNAs can theoretically replicate. Well, what, what other kinds of RNAs are you aware of? I know messenger RNAs and, I guess interfering RNAs, but what, what are some of the other ones that are in the population and what are their functions? 
Right. So uh, messenger RNAs is what uh, we all have known about, uh, which encode uh, for protein coding uh, transcripts, which otherwise called protein coding transcripts. Uh, the known coding components can be largely divided into, into two, uh, the small RNAs and the long RNAs. The small RNAs typically include uh, the micro RNAs, the, the PV interacting RNAs, like for example, the PI RNAs, uh, then there are promoter associated RNAs, uh, then there are enhancer-associated RNAs. There are many, many more classes of uh, small non-coding RNAs. This also includes, for example, tRNAs, uh, which are transfer RNAs. Now, on the other end of the spectrum are longer molecules, longer by definition more than 200 nucleotides. This includes uh, uh, many other classes of non-coding RNAs, which include the long intergenic non-coding RNA uh, or the link RNAs. The LNC RNAs are the long non-coding RNAs and, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, incidentally, many of these are also very large, like for example, ZEST, uh, which is involved in uh, chromosomal regulation or the X chromosomal inactivation rather, uh, has, been, uh, has been known for quite some time. So, uh, and, and today they are close to around 28,000 odd uh, long known coding RNAs, which are now uh, known and have at least, uh, at least a, a functional annot function annotation done uh, at least by computational tools. So now that you've turned to COVID a bit, what the, you're trying to find ways for non-coding RNAs to actually bind to viruses that have entered a cell? Uh, not, not really. So most of our COVID uh, research has been looking at the genome of the virus and, uh, and trying to understand uh, what we call as genetic epidemiology of, uh, of the virus. And the concept is quite simple. The virus mutates at a very constant rate, approximately one substitution every week or so. Um, and, and then therefore, uh, between transmissions, the virus mutates, and, and then therefore you can use this information to trace the epidemic. And if, if, you, if you, for example, sequence a few virus isolates from a particular outbreak or a particular region, then you can sort of gain a lot of understanding about how did this virus get there in the first place? Have there been outbreaks which have been undocumented? Uh, can you can you tag uh, multiple outbreaks which happen elsewhere uh, and point their origin from one specific location? And even more importantly, if if you have a policy uh, to sort of contain a virus, this could be social measures uh, in terms of distancing, education, so on and so forth. This could also be uh, much harsher measures, like for example, lockdown. Now you can also evaluate uh, the effect of these interventions uh, in in terms of the dynamics of of different lineages of virus that come about. So that's what we do. So you're sequencing uh, SARS-CoV-2. Have you done the full sequence? It's, I guess it's about 30,000 base pairs. So you've, yes. you've seen literally the whole sequence? Yeah, so, so SARS-CoV-2 is just, just less than 30,000 base pairs. Yes, uh, as part of the program, we, we, we do the complete sequencing of the genome. So how many sequences have you been able to look at and, and look for differences? Like, you know, hundreds, thousands? Yeah, so globally today we have uh, close to uh, just over 100,000 genomes. Uh, I, I would say it's a, it's a skewed representation. At least half of it comes from one single program out of, uh, out of the United Kingdom. But, but nevertheless, uh, uh, the, the rest of the genomes are quite uh, distributed across the world. From India, uh, where I come from, the, the total number of sequences are just reaching 4,000 genomes at this moment. So when you see that there's changes in them, is it just one nucleotide is changing or are there blocks that are rearranging or changing? Like what's the nature of the differences you see? 
So typically, these are single nucleotide substitutions. But having said that, uh, there could also be small or large deletions in the genome, which also are not very infrequent. But for most of the practical applications, we look at single nucleotide changes. But, you, but you're not seeing modular changes where genes are moving around and transposing positions? No, no. That, that doesn't really happen that, that frequently in, in viruses, at least in COVID. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, are you able to tell based on a, um, you know, a single change of a nucleotide what's going to happen phenotypically, what's going to happen with the virus? Will it be more virulent? Will it be virulent in a different way? Like, you know, are you able to correlate that at all? We don't correlate that in, in experimental setups, but of course we do look at, or, or, or rather we have compiled a, a quite large um, data set of genetic mutations in the SARS-CoV-2 and their functional implications. So briefly, the functional implications could, uh, based on the literature evidence, could be classified into uh, largely two classes. One, which increases the infectivity of the virus, and typically these are spike protein mutations, which can uh, which can increase uh, the infectivity uh, in the virus, proven by both in vitro as well as in some cases in vivo studies. The other class of vi- uh, variations are the ones which, uh, which attenuate the virus, and typically these are uh, mutations uh, in the ORF8 gene. And apart from that, of course, there's a, there's a lot of information about mutations which are involved in the immune response uh, because typically uh, our immune system recognizes peptides uh, uh, which are presented on the MHC molecule or the, or the HLA molecules. And that's how the T cells and the B cells sort of uh, get educated and uh, sort of respond uh, to a particular pathogen. And there's also a lot of information about genetic variations which can change these peptides, which we call as epitopes uh, of the virus. Where are you getting these isolates from? Like, are you just taking a, a sample from, you know, from a person that has given a sample? Or, like, where do you get them from? Yeah, so these, these isolates are from patients who have been tested positive uh, for SARS-CoV-2, uh, mostly by real-time PCR methods. Okay, so when you look at a typical sample and you're going to make an isolate, how much variation are you seeing, you know, of the uh, sequences you get from an infected person? Is there a lot of difference or are they all the exact same? Most of the 30,000 base pairs are the same. On an average, uh, uh, you would get uh, anything from, uh, say, 5 to 15 variations uh, uh, compared to the reference genome in an individual. Oh, so mo- are all the same or most the same? Like most of, you know, most of, yeah, most of the 30,000 base pairs are going to be the same, except for uh, probably uh, half a dozen to a dozen genetic variants. Well, how many variations of the variants do you see in a given sample? Can you tell? So uh, in, in on an average in a given sample, uh, you would get anything from half a dozen to almost uh, 10 to 15 variations per genome. But of course, if you look at a, a larger corpus of genomes, say 4,000 odd genomes, you would get uh, on an average uh, of around uh, 5,000 odd unique genetic variations. Uh, in, in, in this population. No, but I mean within one sample. Within one sample, it's, uh, yeah, it, it is going to be approximately half a dozen to a dozen genetic variations. And what percentage of the population do they represent? Is there like a master fittest type or one that is, is dominant? And then there's just a, you know, a low percentage, like 1% variance or, you know, what do the numbers look like? So uh, most of the genetic variants are actually polymorphic. That means that they're also shared between other isolates uh, sequenced elsewhere or, or by us, of course. Uh, 
a, a very small proportion of these variations are personal variants which are found in one two or or a small number of isolates okay so when you compare um like you said thousands of them they all tend to vary in a similar way as well yeah this so there are some genetic variations which are going to be common uh, between a majority of these isolates for example uh, one of these variations that we have been looking at is the D614G Uh, so this is a variation which sort of marks a particular lineage of the virus called the A2A, and which today is the most dominant lineage of the virus across the globe. Uh, but having said that, India has another small lineage of virus. Uh, uh, today is small, but to start with, it was a much larger uh, in, in percentage number. Uh, way back in in April May. This lineage, which we call as the I or the A3I, uh, had close to around 50% representation in all the genomes that were sequenced. But over time, this has come down. So uh, the I or the A3I clade or the lineage uh, has uh, a completely different set of genetic variations, three genetic variations, which are shared between all members of this particular lineage. So, so there could be genetic variations which are systematically present in one lineage, which can sort of identify the lineage and found in majority of this. genomes and similarly you could have a different lineage getting formed by a different set of genetic variations which are shared by members of that lineage but what can people tell about the different lineages do they have different pathogenicity you know, what's different about them besides the sequence right so uh, conceptually lineages arise out of emergent events when i say emergent events this could be for example an outbreak uh, in physical sense this could be because of natural selection for example because of an advantage that a particular genetic variant could confer a particular virus or it could also mean that uh, a particular genetic variant would attenuate the virus and then therefore they would diminish uh, slowly from from the corpus but you looking at any empirical data have you seen okay with these variants these people have gotten sick and they were more sick than another variants That affected other people. Has anyone done that? Yes, for uh, at least genetic variations which attenuate with virus, which are essentially one of eight uh, mutations or deletions. People have seen that uh, individuals who have this uh, genetic, uh, who have the virus with with the genetic variant, uh, don't produce much of uh, severe symptom. Um, so they they are attenuated uh, viruses. Well, what do you? Well, so it was just this genetic variation that attenuated them. That's just right. this. Is this attenuation correlated with any conditions? Is this has this come recently, or did it come early? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so these are random okay, events. Other attenuation events, you know. Yeah. So these are random. So these are essentially random events. Uh, since uh, you would you would imagine an attenuated virus cannot propagate as efficiently as, uh, for example, the other viruses. Uh, so that therefore these are extremely rare events and they tend to die over time because uh, it doesn't confer the virus an advantage uh, while of course it confers the human host an advantage because it can effectively handle the virus well you can say they're random but we don't know they're random there may be a correlation if we look so again like once an attenuated virus exists does it what happens does it continue to infect and stay attenuated or do you see a resurgence of pathogen pathogenicity But has anyone looked to see the yes. pattern? If there is any, so, yeah. So, looking at the global data, many of these events seem to be very isolated events. 
uh, especially looking at, for example, the war of eight deletions. These are extremely rare isolated events, uh, which doesn't seem to have uh, propagated over time. So you don't see a sort of a, a, a lineage emerging out of these uh, viruses who have these kind of deletions. Are you seeing lineages? Are you seeing convergence back to the original form? Or do these lineages, you know, they continue off their own fork and don't rejoin the original? And if so, what happens to them? Yeah, yeah. so lineages typically fork on and on and on. But uh, having said that, the genetic variants, so if you look at individual genetic variations, there are, of course, genetic variations which tend to recur in multiple lineages, uh, irrespective of what lineage they originated from. So that essentially means that there are uh, some uh, non-random mechanisms or shared mechanisms by which the virus mutates. There is some evidence to suggest that this could be mediated by specific uh, enzymes in the, in the human body, which are uh, related to RNA editing. Um, but of course, uh, there's a lot of experimental evidence that is needed to be created to prove that. So after all this time, even with all these lineages and variants, the virus is largely unchanged or has it changed? The virus has uh, remained largely unchanged because one, it is, uh, it is not enough time to, uh, for, for the slow drift to happen to, to convert it into something else. Um, so at this point, we are, we are probably, what, uh, eight or nine months into the epidemic. Uh, it's not enough time to... Uh, to mutate the virus so much that it has changed into something else. Well, you said one variation happens a week. That's right. So if we take, uh, you know, eight months, that's 32 weeks, that's 32 variations if it keeps to that schedule. So, you know, that's uh, what, uh, 0.1%? Is that enough to uh, make a big difference? Or like how much time do you think it'll take? So uh, essentially the big differences are not really dependent upon how how big is the mutation or how, how many number of cases that change. Uh, the big differences happen in small changes. Uh, typically, for example, um, like for example, the D614G is essentially a mutation in the spike protein, uh, which, uh, which in initially computational evidence have suggested and later experimental evidence has also suggested that it can bind quite effectively to the receptor sites. So there are small changes which actually make big differences uh, because at the end of the day, all of all of viral pathogens is based on molecular recognition in terms of first the virus identifying the host protein and, and latching onto it. And second, of course, a set of viral proteins which interact with the host to, to modulate a cellular function. So at the end of the day, it all boils down to molecular recognition and any genetic variation which can put up any part of this molecular recognition could have actually a big effect. So you don't need to expect that uh, the entire genome needs to change. Uh, just small genetic variations could actually make a big difference. Well, if it doesn't matter the size, it just matters what has mutated and what has changed. Again, That's what it. has changed in the virus? You said the spike protein is able to bind a bit better to what the ACE2 receptor, is that the change? Like, what are the changes have you observed? When the virus emerged, so one of these genetic variation was, uh, was this lineage-associated genetic variation, which we call the D614G. Uh, it's not a unique genetic variation. There are many more spike uh, mutations which can uh, bind to the, the AC2 receptors much more uh, efficiently or much less efficient. So over time, many of these mutations have appeared. Uh, 
uh, and of course, like all viruses, if something uh, provides them an advantage, they tend to emerge much faster. Uh, and probably that is what is being seen because it looks like a signal for natural selection because practically uh, close to around 80% of all global isolates now belong to this one genetic lineage which has this one particular mutation. So the only significant mutation you've seen except for rare instances of attenuation is just a slightly better ability to bind to the, uh, the ACE2 receptor. Mm. No, so that is one that has been experimentally proven by multiple studies. There are at least another um, 70 odd genetic variations in the spike protein, uh, which, uh, which people have suggested could either increase or re- reduce the efficiency of binding. Well, what about other aspects? What about the, uh, the capsid itself? What about, uh, you know, once Absolutely. it's inside a cell, the mechanism of action, et cetera? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there, there are going to be many more genetic variations which are going to be functional. The only limitation has been we don't really understand the biology of the virus to that great detail to be able to understand the effects of these functions or the effects of these variants. Clearly speaking, practically every gene in, in the virus has mutations. And it, it depends upon uh, where you look at and how you look at uh, to find functionality. The other, other uh, functionality, uh, not, not in terms of the virus functionality, but in terms of the diagnostic functionality, uh, are mutations which, which can actually perturb the binding of RT-PCR primers and probes and which could affect the efficacy of your detection. There have been a lot of genetic variations, which, of course, the virus has no functional advantage to it, but would affect the human ability to be able to detect them in standard assays. So there, there are many more of these kinds of variations. So what would you say is your particular goal in your research? Are you trying to find a way to bind to the virus after it enters cells or before it enters cells? Like what specifically are you targeting? Uh, no. So practically speaking, we are at this moment not really interested in looking at uh, what binds it better or what binds it less. But at this moment, we are interested in looking at how did the virus emerge uh, or what are the evidence to suggest where and how did this outbreaks occur? And that would be a very useful learning in, in trying to contain the virus in the future. And what we realize, at least in many states uh, that we study the virus, uh, is that contrary to the popular belief that a majority of these infections uh, or, or the outbreaks happened because of people who travel from abroad, uh, at least in many of the states that we studied, it's actually the local outbreaks which contributed to the majority of the infections. So that would have a lot of policy implications because, uh, for example, the quarantine time period for foreign travelers versus interstate travelers were very different. The travel restrictions on foreign travelers versus interstate travelers were very different. So this could now be, in, in, in terms of evidence, reworked upon to, be, to understand how do we contain epidemics uh, or outbreaks even before they could arise. Right. The, the past outbreaks were essentially uh, because we, we thought about something, but something else happened. And, and put, to put in numbers, approximately 30% of uh, all the viruses uh, today in, in the country like India has come from such local outbreaks, which in many ways could have been prevented. So you know, it seems like the, uh, the death rate has peaked and has been coming down in many places. Why, why do you think that is? Now, death rate uh, is actually probably not the right measure to look at because it depends upon how 
how much you test and whom you test. The policies for testing vary quite quite drastically across the world. Uh, in in some places, only symptomatic people are tested. Uh, in some places, uh, actually, even normal people who are asymptomatic are tested. So it depends upon whom you test. So the death rate really doesn't have much of a meaning unless the, you, the death rate's not important. Testing's important. The death rate's not. That makes no sense. No, the death rate percent is actually a factor of the testing positives, right? The, the factor that we need to keep in mind is that there are far more number of people who are who are positive but have never been tested, right? So comparison of these numbers are are not really straightforward because it's also a factor of the number of tests done at a point in time. Well, someone dies, they die, whether or not they've been tested. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but absolutely. By, by the time they're they're very sick. You would have. They would have been tested for sure at this point. And there's a lot more testing going on, so it appears that uh, the number of deaths per people tested is way down as well. And in general, the death death rate is way down. It's not like people are just going to die at home and they're not going to be tested. And there's all these hidden deaths. I mean, it seems like deaths are the the ultimate statistic, not just tests. Yeah. So that's exactly my point. Uh, to state that the death rate is probably uh, not a, a not an easy. Uh, estimate of anything because the testing rate per se has changed over time right because if your denominator changes right the rate is also going to change so it is probably not a straightforward assessment uh, in, in terms of uh, of a uniform distribution of testing that has happened over time and then therefore might not be a right measure to compare right but having said that it's always important to to, to look at the causes of death uh, and uh, and also look at how you can go back and prevent them. So, okay. Well, very good. Uh, you know, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go to learn more? They could go to my website, which is vinodskaria.rnabiology.org. Uh, and uh, for COVID, we have a very specific page on all the COVID work that we do. Okay. Well, very good. You know, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.